0: Hello, everyone. I'm Megan. I'm Tyler. And this is Office Hours, the podcast where two literature professors analyze the great American story.
1: Megan, we're doing it. We're doing it. We are uh, gonna. We're gonna have a podcast about we're the office.
0: Podcast. This has been an idea and an aspiration. <laughs> a really long time, that I thought I was never going to follow through on. But here we go.
1: I'm really excited about this because you are, I think in my life, like the Office super fan that I am. <laughs> and like, I, you know, it, we'll, we'll unpack our like relationships to this show. But uh, I will just say I am not, I have not been historically a fan of this show. <laughs> so when you said like, hey, let's make a podcast about it and i was like oh that could be fun though because like you're a fan and i'm <laughs> like for me so even watching this first episode my skin is crawling mm. at this the cringy moments i'm like oh it kills me so so i'm kind of excited uh cuz we have very different perspectives uh on this show
0: i am so happy that we have that combination because i also feel like i've watched all of the episodes so many times that I've lost that sense of what it's like when you first experience it. And I think there are people who enjoy the awkward, uncomfortable humor. And then there are people who just feel like this is too awkward. It's stressful and I can't even stand it. So Are
1: are you one of those people that enjoys it?
0: I enjoy it. Yeah, I enjoy it. I can't understand the people who can't watch it because it's too difficult. Um, So we'll see what's going on there.
1: Oh, we'll have to process that. Uh, uh, I didn't realize we have this gulf in our friendship. You know, that's maybe maybe that's really what this podcast is about. (laughs) Understanding each other, and (laughs) but I will go ahead. Yeah, about
0: resolving our differences.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, though, uh, part of the reason when, because this was your idea, and I thought it was like, that's brilliant. I feel like when my students talk about, um, oh, and we should like say what we do and who we are, but when my students talk about television or popular culture, like The Office is it for them. Like maybe Friends is second, um, SpongeBob is in the mix, you know, but The Office is the most consistent thing, when they make like PowerPoint slides, they always put in office memes, you know, and I'm, so I'm sort of fascinated that like, cause like it wasn't really, like they're too young to be watching it when it was actually on. So it's all retrospective. So I'm sort of curious, like what they resonate with in it.
0: Yeah, I was thinking about that and it is kind of fascinating. And I realized that My family is way into the office, and we quote it to each other all the time. But I don't really have hardcore office friends. Except (laughs) now, in my classes, there are all of these students showing up in Dunder Mifflin shirts. Oh wow! Referencing the office and class discussions and stuff. And I was thinking about it, and I guess they were born in like two. 2000 ish, 2002, something like that. So when this I came out,
1: so they oh.
0: were little tiny kids, and so I am so curious too, what their experience is and kind of what the the gap is and the timing and how how you see it. But yeah, so you mentioned what we do, and this is also some of the reasoning for why I thought you, even as not a super fan, were the perfect person to do this podcast with.
1: Well, yeah. So should we say like what we do and how we know each other? Let's do it. All right. Uh, Well, so I'm Tyler and uh, um, I'm an associate professor in the English department at SUNY Cortland. Um, And uh, so I teach courses, you know, in like contemporary literature, sexuality studies, queer studies. Um, and, And the way that I know Megan is because we were both in graduate school together and um, yeah, I just like remember sitting in these like incredibly intimidating seminars and like looking across the room and being like, Megan gets it. Like, (laughs) Megan is like, totally we're on the same wavelength in terms of, uh, you know, um, I don't know, not being uh, caught up in the pretentiousness of academia, but also being really excited to talk about ideas Whether that's in like very esoteric long novels or whether it's talking about, you know, super trashy pop culture. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, tell them about you.
0: Yeah. So, I am also an associate professor of English. I teach at North Central College in Illinois. Um, I teach writing classes and literature classes and a lot of stuff about race and gender. So, those are some of the things um, that I'm interested in. And had very similar feelings to you, Tyler, in graduate school. And actually, I remember sitting across one of those round or I guess big square tables, sitting across from you with a friend who was in my year. And we were first years and we were so intimidated. It felt terrifying. But you were across the way and this is a podcast format, so you all can't see how good Tyler is at nodding. But you have a really fantastic listening face and nod, so that trying to speak up in those classes, was like, yes, Tyler, this guy, we can talk to him. So I remember this friend and I left the class, and we're like, we love Tyler. Yeah, we love Tyler. Let's be, Let's be friends with him. And it worked out.
1: It was a mutual mutual love fest uh uh but i yeah i love that idea that i have a vigorous nod uh that people can't see uh <laughs> but that is like i do feel like my teaching is just like 90 percent like nodding and being excited about what people say you know uh-huh. um but on the other hand i would say people can't see you but you also have this like just this energy this enthusiasm or whatever that 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 always makes me feel like oh I can think of thought you know <laughs> so Megan and I have been like you know just well we we lived together at one point during graduate school um so I'm sure we'll have stories to tell about that as we go along um but also like we're always you know kind of like working on writing together and and academic stuff but then you know, we'll have these like much longer conversations about The Bachelor or about, you know, uh, uh, Parks and Rec or whatever. So um, so it just seemed like, oh yeah, we should totally, I mean, what what else would two white people in their 30s do other than like make a podcast? That just seems like, you know, yeah. uh, the new um, midlife crisis or quarter life, you know, third life crisis, I don't know something
0: Um, but yeah we're kind of late in the game everyone already has yeah but we're we're joining in joining into that and i think one of the great benefits of getting a phd in literature is that you just get better and better at talking about the bachelor for example (laughs) um and one of the things i think i wanted to do with this podcast was just go deeper with it and analyze it because there are people I talk to like we just love it and we quote it and we talk about it and all that but I kind of wanted to do the deeper dive and really think about the story and what it means and what's do what it's doing so we're going to do some close reading as we say as we say in the literature business of the office
1: (laughs) yeah (laughs) <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I mean, some of the things that I'm really excited to talk about are, well, like I kind of already said this, but just like the the nature of comedy now and then, you know, in the 2000s, um, and uh, and you know, I don't know, I mean, like I'm I'm actually really fascinated by that way in which I can cringe and almost want to turn the show off. And I did like the very first time I tried to watch the show, I was just like, nah, this isn't for me, you know, whereas you like really resonate with it and and others do as well. And so I'm just kind of like interested in what different kinds of comedy do for us, what they make available, you know, all of that. Um, but I'm also kind of interested in it as a story of like class and capitalism. Um, and I've seen some some snarky, you know, tweets here and there about the office and like corporate uh kind of like how it approaches the ideology of corporate um America and and capitalism and so I thought it'd be fun for us to kind of talk about that right like it is literally a workspace um and so I'm sure it will give us lots of uh things to say about how we all relate to work in the contemporary you know, situation. And I mean, even watching this first episode, I was like, oh, my God, things are so different from the context that this premiered versus now, such as they're not, (laughs) I don't mean to like jump into the conversation, but the fact that everybody wasn't like, oh, my God, we might lose our jobs. I was (laughs) like, what? Like some of them are like, yeah, this job sucks. Like, so it wouldn't be that bad. And I'm like, oh, things have really changed in capitalism. Um, so anyway, yeah, I'm really excited to talk about all that, all that kind of stuff.
0: Good. So, um, I guess, should we jump into, should we, should we go to the summary and jump into it?
1: Yeah, I think so. Do we have any other things we need to tell everybody? I mean, one thing I'll say is I have a small Chihuahua who is sleeping on the floor behind me. And if you hear strange noises, it is him snoring. Uh, He's an older dog with nasal issues. (laughs) I don't know. I'm trying to think what else do they need? Do they need uh, anything
0: else? I also have a geriatric dog (laughs) here, um, but a very large one, a Great Dane. So you might hear her pop in at some point but
1: oh and if this is like a huge success like we could you know we don't have to stop at american office like we could do the british office you know like we're already being like so gauche i'm sure we're like we're not the correct kind of elitist because we're not doing the british one first we should really isn't that like a whole debate among office people like which one's better is that oh a thing? yeah,
0: I'm sure I'm I'm sure it is. I think there are, I think there are a lot of people really committed to the the British, you know, being the ultimate. And actually I think some of the really awkward uncomfortable tense stuff is more so in
1: the British office. Oh, oh well then
0: yeah. We and I, haven't have even, I must confess I haven't even watched through that whole thing. But Ooh. you're right. This podcast is a raging success.
1: Come on. Yeah, we'll do that. We won't stop. No, we'll do, we'll (laughs) do, we'll (laughs) we'll go, we'll go do Parks and Rec. Like, we'll sign me up, you know? Um, All right. Yeah. I think we should, we should dive in, like you say, and, uh, and unpack the pilot.
0: All right. So here is the summary. And this comes from NBC. This is just the summary from the Peacock website. Dunder Mifflin manager michael scott tries to stay upbeat when a documentary crew arrives amid downsizing rumors so there we go
1: i love it short and sweet um
0: short and sweet and i feel like maybe then we should start with this documentary crew thing because that's so central to the form of it and part of what was really distinctive about this show before there were so many shows that had the mock documentary approach. So what did you think of that? I know you feel the show is kind of, kind of awkward. Is part of it this format? Do you have a, a different take on that? What do you think?
1: That's a great point. I hadn't really connected the mockumentary form to the awkwardness. But I mean, there was a a moment like in the middle of this episode where, I think it's maybe when um, Pam's uh, fiance comes in um, or around then, but anyway, the camera like is behind one of the like trees in the office or like a fake bush or something like that. And kind of like rushes to go catch what's going on or whatever and I was like, oh, right. Like we're acting as if we're voyeurs, you know, like kind of peeking into this space that we don't that we aren't necessarily supposed to be in um you know we're outsiders or something like that and so maybe that's maybe that is there's something really to that I mean I do think we were kind of talking about this before um uh with Parks and Rec and like as a show that took off with that mockumentary style I'm not really sure what the origin is in like tv um but this was definitely the first time I'd ever seen a show that kind of pretended like um we were watching a documentary um and had those like cutaways to people giving their one-on-one I don't know what you call it you know so I'm yeah, not sure if yeah. I mean this if this was popularized like in reality television and then they kind of took it up but Ooh, yeah. um yeah I don't know I mean, like I I I like it I think I like it as a genre um, yeah. but tell me your thoughts about
0: awesome. it Was Final Tap Mm. this kind of format? Was that? I, I can't really remember that very well. But yeah, you're right. It does get that reality TV kind of feel. And one of the things that I've been thinking about is what it means for the characters being performers and I don't mean the actors being performers but I mean the characters performing for the documentary
1: yes yes
0: and one of the things I noticed this time was that the very beginning scene Jim is in Michael's office Michael has just called him in and Michael asks how are things going at the library and it quickly becomes clear that Michael has set this scene up, actually, because Jim responds when he asks about how it's going with his library account. Jim tells him, oh, I told you I couldn't close it. So, Mm. and then Michael kind of steps in like, so you've come to the master for guidance. (laughs) Right. And just that little moment of Jim saying, I, like I already told you, you know, I didn't close this. So the way that he has planned and kind of manipulated the situation so that this comment that maybe happened off camera, or when they weren't catching it, then gets reenacted for the camera, and then when he can show what a master salesman he is.
1: Uh, that is so interesting to me because I, you're totally right, and and part of what is in like t- both interesting and like really horrific to me about Michael Scott as a character is his like desperate need to be thought funny. And, yes. um, and so he's constantly like doing bits and they are this like performances. And I guess I had read it as like, oh, this is a particular kind of like jokey masculinity that I've met and hate. And um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I should qualify that, but I won't right now. <laughs> i just like, I just feel like I, I'm, I've met this kind of guy who's like, who's, joking is like kind of aggressive and um thoughtless even if it's like not not intending to be malicious anyway so he's performative anyway but you're totally right that like the mockumentary form is a perfect like um I don't know reflection of that whole attitude it also gives like a justification for it right that he's like not only trying to like make all of his coworkers like him and be his family, but like he's performing for us or for the camera. But it's interesting to me, unless I missed it, do they say why they're filming this or these people? Do do we get any sense of like, there's no explanation, right, for the documentary?
0: Yeah, I don't think they do at all. And I feel like they don't very directly address that or think about it actually going on tv until a much later season so we don't yeah we don't get much explanation for it and it's interesting how then the the audience and viewers just it's like okay you're gonna adapt to this format and I wonder if that's part of why when they they started the show they were constantly not sure if they were going to keep going you know if they were going to be able to make more episodes if they get picked up for another season really yeah
1: Oh, interesting. I, I I don't know anything about the production or whatever of this show. So you're going to have to like teach me.
0: A I lot, don't know, right? I think I know like one more thing and we'll see when that, that comes out. But we've covered about half of my knowledge.
1: Oh, all right. <laughs> but
0: I want to go back. The thing you said about Michael and his persona as kind of a comedian, he describes himself as a student of comedy. Yes. <laughs> so funny. And I hadn't I hadn't thought about the ways that he, yeah. So he's both a comedian and thinks of himself as an entertainer for the office. But then I wonder what that's like for him to get this platform where he is going to be filmed. Like he loves okay. Bob Hope. He loves the kind of TV comedian. And so that's just making me wonder what this what this new stage sort of means for him.
1: Oh, that's a great question yeah like if he interprets this as like his uh i don't know potential um what do you call it like you know that he's going to be discovered or something like that you know yeah (laughs) i was just gonna say just following up on the mockumentary and then i want to go back to michael um the fact that we don't get any explanation for it makes you either just accept that the this um Quotidian, everyday, you know, on, uh, you know, this is like not a special place. These are not special people. Mm-hmm. Like, in, they're emphatically normal, or normie, I should say. Um, yeah. And so, either you're like, like, just ex- sort of accepting that, like, uh, th- this is interesting to someone, <laughs> um, or their lack, they're the fact that they're not interesting is interesting. <laughs> Or vice versa, you're like sort of waiting to find out what will, what makes them special. Like, why not some other branch? Why not some other group of people or something like, I don't know how conscious that was for me when I was watching it, but I, I definitely was sort of like, why, why would you want, why would anybody want to focus on these people? Because I, did, but I also feel like that is one part of the appeal or i've always met imma- correct me if i'm wrong but i've always sort of imagined that the appeal of this show is that it's kind of like quote unquote we'll have to put a lot of pressure on this word but like relatable because mm-hmm. you're like oh i hate my job and like and there are people just like this at my job or something like that so it's kind of meant to be generalizable or something like that i don't know is that is that how yeah. you experience it
0: I think you're right about that. It's like, it's distinctive in its real ordinariness because it's a little bit like Seinfeld maybe in this way, where it's a show where nothing happens. Right. about nothing, yeah. It's just about what are supposed to be regular days in a regular office with ordinary people this makes me think I want to talk about things too, like wardrobe and makeup and stuff like that. Oh, well, we got to
1: talk it? about the makeup. Ordinary, yeah.
0: Ordinary aesthetic. And yeah, I think you're right. It's like they, they go to work and it's boring and it feels normal in that way. And I think that also connects for some people to the awkwardness. Like I know, but somebody who said they can't watch it because their boss is too much like Michael Scott, oh, God. and so it's just disturbing, and they can't handle it. Right. I think I get. I guess I have the fortune of not having had a boss like Michael Scott, and so maybe that can give me a little bit of, a little bit of distance. But on the the relatability question, I also wonder if it if this format does it ever get in your head a little bit, it's making me start to imagine myself in a mockumentary of my own work and to think, what would they follow? What would those boring things that become interesting or that can't, Like, what what would be those boring things that become interesting? What would we be saying in those
1: little interviews? Yes, yes, yes. I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm just saying,
0: yes. (laughs) That was the end of it. That was all I had.
1: I, yeah, I told, well, I think, one of the pleasures that I find in like realism often is that like, I leave some, you know, something that's like, I'm trying to think of like a realist movie where not a lot happens, you know, but people are kind of going through their ordinary day or whatever. And I leave those movies sometimes. I so I never want to watch them. And then when I leave them, I feel better about my boring ass life. And, um Because yeah, I'm like, oh, the everyday is in and of itself, like potentially filled with narrative or whatever. And uh, so I love this point that you're making that like, maybe that's, you know, it kind of gets in your head and you start to imagine your own life in these terms. Um, But it it made me wonder, oh, go ahead, yeah.
0: So I was just gonna say, is this the only show where the characters, go to the bathroom. Oh. They talk about, like they go, they talk about it. Um, There are sometimes not in this one, but like scenes that are in there and it's making me think about reading uh, Ulysses by James Joyce. I promise I won't go too far into into this very professorly thing. But I remember talking about with the professor, this being one of the first times in literature that it had represented somebody just in the bathroom, and yes. it takes a lot of time to this thing that is so ordinary and so normal, but so absent in literature like that yeah. is not represented. And so, not that it's represented in any kind of graphic detail here in the office, um, but just those kinds of things that are moments that we would just cut out of stories, yeah, whether they're it's that or they're just. Moments when they're kind of standing or sitting and looking around or making copies or whatever it might be—the things that feel like they're not part of the story that would usually get cut out—and they're all there.
1: I love this point because I was really struck. We have, we've got to talk about the opening. Um, what do you call it? Like montage. You know the uh, yeah. the song and the montage, and it's like you know scenes of the characters and and whatnot. But what really struck me was. We see like the water cooler, we see the um, we see somebody making copies, like you said. We see highlighting, which then I think Pam does that later in the episode, or it's whiting something out. But mm-hmm. yeah, like it's these like, and I feel like we often talk about like what isn't represented as um either like what is too traumatic or too sublime. It's like too intense to be represented. Um, or it's been excluded for, you know, political reasons or something like that. But this is like, it's not narrated because it's so boring. And what's interesting to me about that is like, well, what is Jim's for? like Jim's iconic thing is the, uh, the, when they cut to him, right. And he's like, you know, I don't even know how to do it over a podcast, but he gives the Jim face, you know? Yeah. And so as far as I could tell, the very first Jim face was like him being bored And then realizing the camera was filming him and he kind of looks and he's like, you know, yeah. Cause he's like staring at Dwight, I think, like either pushing his papers over or something. But I was like, oh my God, I always thought Jim's face was about snark. Like, can you believe it? I'm stuck around these assholes. I'm so much better than this. And in fact, I was like, oh, maybe he's just like, I'm so bored, kill me, you know, or something (laughs) like that.
0: That is so fascinating. And I hadn't thought to look and hadn't noticed that first moment. I'm gonna to have to go back and rewatch. But I think it connects to, to what might be his first interview where mm, yeah. apparently they've asked him what it is that he does and he yeah. starts to talk about it. And he says something like, I'm boring myself even
1: yeah, about it. That's interesting. I mean, in that way, maybe Michael, well, okay. Here's my question for you about Michael Scott. Cause like, if this is the context, then on some level, maybe like Michael's attempts to make things funny is like, like one way to read it is that he's doing a good, like he's attempting to do a good thing, but he's really bad at it. Another way is that he's like, he actually, Shouldn't be doing any of this, but he gets away with it because he's in this position of power. Like I kept asking myself, like why, why is he tolerated? You know, and like besides the obvious, I was like, all right, he's the boss. He's a white man, a straight white man, um, who just like you know, and that kind of um, privilege saturates the workspace. But there was one throwaway line too, where he's like, oh yeah, like I, I wrote it down somewhere, but he like increased profits by like 17% or something and cut expenses without firing anybody. And I was like, Oh, he's good at his job. Like we're supposed to be like, you know, that maybe that's why corporate tolerates him. But then, yeah, I don't know. I just was kind of wondering what your take was on like, yeah, what, what are we to understand about what, how he gets away with saying stuff that is so, um, offensive.
0: Yeah. That's a great question that, And I like the combination of how does he get away with it? And is he good at his job? (laughs) And does his exuberant and offensive comedy bring things to the office that people in some way do want or do want some of that? The thing too about whether, yeah, like, is he is he good enough at his job in some ways that it's not mixed up for it, but I guess makes it tolerable. And in that first scene, when Jim can't close the account at the library, Michael does it. Yeah. And then he offends the person on the end of the line when he says she's a gentleman and a scholar and he finds <laughs> out she's a woman. Right. So it ends on a very Michael note, although it it does cut away during the entire actual conversation when he's making the sale. So he sets it up that he's going to model this for Jim. He makes the call and then it cuts to him kind of closing closing the deal down and, and signing off. So we don't actually see what makes him a good salesman, but apparently... Mm-hmm that's a moment of success for Michael. And apparently he is kind of a good salesman.
1: Is that gonna, I wonder, or maybe you shouldn't spoil me, but I did wonder like how that's gonna matter either to this plot around downsizing or just like the show in general, like whether being good at or bad at the shop matters. Like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I mean, we haven't really talked about it but it's in Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is, you know, um, I don't know, like a small town. <laughs> you know, what's, what's in Scranton, right? Like, isn't that part of the kind of joke of it, but also it's like, they're, yeah. they're, they're selling paper. Like, are, they're not even like making paper, right? They just sell <laughs> right. <it>. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, I don't have any point other than just to say like, I, maybe that is inherently funny to me <laughs> that they're selling yeah. paper. Like, um, and it kind of made me think too, like, oh, in 2000, when did this out? 2005? Like okay, maybe- yeah it was, was it already think, were we already kind of having conversations about like paper going away and everything being digital? Like, I don't know if we were, but I was just, I couldn't place like, anyway, so I'll be really curious like how a lot of this stuff plays out. Um, Ooh, and whether in the British one, oh my, if anybody is listening to this and they're actually fans, they're like so mad at us, but on the (laughs) other hand, Like, aren't they going to enjoy that we get to discover these things as we go? Because, like, I'm kind of curious if in the British version, are they also selling paper? Like, is that or did they change it? For Mm. Anyway, um, quick question. Is Michael Scott hot? Because this is a thing that I I, I argue about (laughs) with people all the time. Do you think Steve Carell is hot?
0: Okay, I got to bracket that for a minute because I got a lot to say on that topic. But I still want to follow up on something that you just that you raised about being good at your job. And so it's a question for Michael and it's also a question that's interesting for the others. I think too, both, are they good at it, but is there any motivation to want to be good at it? Right, right. It feels Like a, a countdown the clock kind of job for a lot of people. Pam talks, you know about how she loves doing illustrations and it's no i think she says it's no little girl's dream to be a receptionist and so it's this sort of place of disappointment rather than um, you know being a kind of exciting or inspiring job for her but i will say this is my second piece of knowledge that's just outside of the show itself and i think i heard this watching um a director's cut or something like that or an interview with one of the producers so I can't remember where it came from but I remember them saying that in adapting the British office for an American version that they had to make the boss better than um Ricky Gervais's character in the British version that they had to make him they basically had to explain in some way, how would this guy keep his job? Because <laughs> they said American audiences won't put up with him being completely useless. So he has to have some things that help him hold on so that we can kind of understand him as a worker who keeps a job.
1: Oh my God. So that's What does that say about thing, us?
0: Right? Wait, Maybe say we that can again? A comparative analysis of the two <laughs> of these things. Yeah
1: what does that say about american ideologies of capitalism um oh my god that's fascinating i mean on the one hand like i kind of get it uh, you know cuz i was searching for that too i'm like why why does anybody fire this guy I, you know but mm-hmm. um i was just like well you know privilege you know <laughs> like but um but it is interesting that they felt the need to insert that I and mean, then i wonder if that for many in the audience, like, does that redeem him? Or does that sort of justify him? Um Anyway, yeah. is amazing. he hot though, is a really important question yeah. we have to unpack, let's, put okay. aside all of this.
0: So let's talk, let's talk, is he hot? And then let's come back also to Jan Levinson Gould. Oh, her, yes. That's interesting too, in terms of the fact that he does not get fired. Yeah. Um, okay, but so, the question the attractiveness of Michael Scott or Steve Carell I think my argument about this about the Steve Carell appeal is that it kind of comes more after the office Mm. as he gets a little older a little grayer it's like he really comes into his own but so I, I remember kind of noticing him later, like as Steve Carell, not in the position of Michael Scott and thinking, huh, okay, Steve Carell. (laughs) So I don't know, in the office, um, he's so, he's so off-putting in so many ways that to me, I, I would really have to argue for that as as a Steve Carell, separate from the Office kind of thing, is that yeah. possible? Can I separate the uh, the artist from the man? You know what I mean.
1: <laughs> so you're saying like the character Michael Scott is not hot, but Steve Carell as a yeah. human being, outside of this narrative or whatever, could is sometimes, yeah, or, I just and think increasingly so. Awesome
0: in response to this question, yeah, I have very different feelings and different experiences of him as Michael Scott versus like later as Steve Carell.
1: Yeah, no, that makes total sense to me. And, uh, but I have heard people say like, oh, you know, Steve Carell as Michael Scott is like super hot. And I'm like, I just can't get <laughs> okay. <that."> uh, older <laughs> Steve Carell though. Same I'm about this. Well, just like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I mean, I of course want to psychoanalyze it and be like, oh, this is some sort of like, you know, daddy boss, uh, scenario. And like, I'm, I'm here for that, you know, whatever. But, um, but I just think to me, it's that, like that certain, what I find so repulsive about him as Michael Scott is that kind of, um, I don't even know what to to call it. It's kind of like buddy, buddy masculinity, Mm -hmm. the ways in which, you know, he, he like so desperately wants to be, thought as funny, but doesn't know how to do it. I don't know, something, something, all of that makes him like unattractive to me. Uh, but I'm I'm with you though. I do think older Steve, grayer Steve Carell I'm into. Younger Steve Carell, not for me. Like I'll take EJ <laughs> Novak, Novak uh, all day long. What's his name? Um, Ryan. He, Ryan the Temp. Yeah, I thought <laughs> Ryan the Temp. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> really hot, but Michael Scott, not for me. Yeah. Um,
0: well, you'll find that Michael Scott thinks Ryan the temp is pretty hot too.
1: Oh, oh, I'm looking forward to it. I'm I hope...
0: killer, just to give give you a little little taste of what's coming.
1: Okay, tell me about Jan and in uh, that scene um, where she shows up and sort of is representing corporate, right?
0: Yes, okay, so Jan comes into the office. She is Michael's boss. I can't remember what her actual position is. I forget. Something, but, she, but yeah, basically she's there representing corporate. So she comes in to have this meeting with Michael and he introduces her saying, using her full name, Jan Levinson Gould. And he says, I call her Hillary Rodham Clinton, right? Not to her face. Well, not because I'm scared of her because I'm not. Well, yeah. So what did you think of the whole interaction between
1: these two? Uh, Well, I just looked at Jan is a vice president of regional sales. Um, And I will say that that her presence in the episode brought up something for me that I found to be like, um, I don't really have anything interesting to say about it, but just the entire concept of him as a regional manager. And then Mm -hmm. now knowing there's vice president of regional sales, like is just this kind of like network of, of like, I don't know, a a corporate industry, corporate hierarchy that I don't understand and find like somewhat ridiculous, you know? So like the idea that you'd be, I'm a regional manager is like, oh, okay. Like, what does that even mean? You know? Um, And why would you even want to be it of, of a paper company or whatever? But so her coming in made me really wonder about like yeah his relationship to um to corporate uh I this is like so stupid but what struck me most in that scene is the staging and in the staging it's like I think Jan Michael and Pam but they're all sitting next to each other uh-huh. against like the wall or and maybe Pam's like like a bit cornered but yeah, she's
0: like close of them
1: but they're not sitting at a table or a, You know, either, they're not across a desk and they're not at a table together. And I was like, this is the weirdest staging. You would never have a meeting with somebody where you just like sit next to them when you're supposed to be talking to each other. And I was like, so if, so I just kept being like, what's the point of this? Like, is it to show his lack of respect for authority or like his lack of sort of internalizing her authority? Or is it about, um, you know, like that mockumentary style, they couldn't figure out a way to kind of cut between them to make it feel more intimate or something. Or was it truly that they wanted the three of them in a, in a single shot together so that you could see him trying to blame Pam for his own stupid thing. And I love that Pam is like, well, you told me to throw it in the trash. And, uh, anyway yeah it's not a sophisticated analysis but those are my thoughts i want to know what you thought about oh, that's a
0: great that's a great question and i had not thought about that idea of the how they have to stage it for the mockumentary and the fact that they're going to get a camera crew into this little office because they do end up sitting kind of like people sit you know in a play or something where they're yes. all kind of on the back side of a table it also Allows us to really see Jan's legs.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: Seems kind of important. And it allows Michael to reach over. You know, there's a moment when he kind of taps her knee. And I, I can't remember exactly when it is, but it sort of sets them up physically also to do a couple of those things. That's
1: totally right. Hmm. It was yeah. hard not to imagine what this show would be like now. And like so much of his humor is gendered and sexual and, of, and as we'll discuss, you know, like racialized. So yeah. yeah, I just kept thinking about, cause I guess the moment that that came for me was like with Pam, where he's like, if you think she's cute now, you should have seen her, whatever. And it's like clear that in the context of the show, I think they think, oh my God, he's so inappropriate. Like how rude to say that now she's like not as attractive as she used to be. But mm-hmm. like what we're all thinking now is like you sexist, pig. I mean, maybe people, hopefully people were thinking that then too, but I didn't get the impression that the show was really uh-huh. being like, look, he's a sexist and he's, you know, abusing his position of authority to objectify and fetishize this woman. Uh-huh. Anyway, um. Uh, mm. so yeah, I kept thinking about like, oh, it's interesting. Then they give him a boss. That's a woman.
0: Yeah. And how much it shows all of those little gendered interactions. And yet I, I was thinking about the way that she responds to him mm. and the way that she just thinking of, you know, as a, a woman who is in charge of a man like Michael Scott, how do you handle it? How, how do you, you cope with it, both so that you can kind of deal with it just emotionally so you can deal with it on a kind of practical level in terms of keeping things flowing and keeping the job working? Because, um I was just watching her face. One of the things I love about this show is watching the really small movements on people's face and kind of watching her as she's processing Michael's filing cabinet, where the the thing you mentioned where he's told, told Pam that I have a special filing cabinet for faxes from corporate and it's the trash can. So she's learning this and just kind of watching her quietly processing this because this is the fax that she sent him And he is completely disregarding. And so then she just kind of quietly hands him a copy, but we can see, you know, the irritation that there's basically a lot more going on under there than is actually being processed.
1: Mm.
0: And then Todd Packer calls. Oh yeah. (laughs) Todd Packer, we will get some more of him in future episodes. But when he calls, he says to Michael, hey, you big queen. Is old Godzillary coming in today?
1: Oh Jesus.
0: So that's his start. What did you think about Todd Packer and this phone call? Uh, Which put on speaker.
1: Well, on the one hand, I thought, I don't think I internalized the line. um, what did you just say? Was it Godzilla? Godzilla,
0: yeah.
1: I don't think I'd register. I registered the earlier uh, Hillary Clinton reference. I don't think I registered the second one. And so it's just so interesting, like how Hillary Clinton is this fixture in American, you know, male psyche as like, you know, the castrating boss or something like that, you know? And at that point in 2005, she's not, uh, secretary of state, right? She hasn't run for president, right? Like, it's not, she's not, you know, so she, you know, obviously, of course, she's accomplished and she's, you know, former first lady and all of that. But like, you know, as a person who is like, you know, in the 90s, I was pretty young. And like, I grew up in a conservative family who, like just hated Hillary Clinton. Like, um, and I never quite understood why. I was like, I don't know, she seems all right to me. Like, I don't get it. And so I kind of always just thought like, oh, it's just my family or Republicans or whatever. And so to hear that come up was is interesting to me, but specifically like about this character, what I thought at the time was like, oh, it's interesting. Like, I'm really eager to find out how they position Michael Scott relative to this guy, because Michael is clearly similar to him and yet he is trying to cover it up he's kind of like oh that was an appropriator I wish I'd written down the dialogue he's like not not okay not okay
0: yeah and
1: I took him as earnest in that moment I took him as like he seems capable of understanding um the difference between a joke that hurts people and a joke that is like brings people in or something I don't know and even if yeah. he's like bad at executing it, that was a moment where I felt like, but then I also was like, or not, like maybe he's just covering his own ass. And like, if yeah. Todd was around, he'd be like her, 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 you know, and
0: yeah, buddy,
1: buddy thing. I don't know. What was your, I don't know Todd Packer. So I'll be curious, but what was your take?
0: Yeah. And I'm trying not to, to read in any of the future stuff about Todd Packer, but
1: also, what a name, Todd Packer.
0: Name, right? It's kind of perfect. Yeah. He, when he calls and it comes up, I guess, on, on caller ID and Michael says, oh, Todd Packer, great sales rep. So mm. he's framing it and it's like his, his thinking about Todd Packer is coming in really positive. Mm. But then, yeah, you're right. He, he does get uncomfortable and he does react to this. Like when when Todd uh calls him a big queen, he has a quick like, oh, not appropriate, you know, there's something he says, something he says about that, and then he continues that like sort of awkward pushback as it as it goes on. And then eventually when he asks, Does the carpet match the drapes? Oh, and is that right. when like hangs up? Is that when he decides he has to so. shut it down? I, I can't exactly remember. But in relation to, so he's there now, he has his own feelings about Todd, then he's in front of Jan, and so Jan is overhearing this interaction with Todd, and we have the cameras- Yes. Filming this thing with Todd. But I think there is a conflict in Michael over who he wants to be in some way, because I I think, I think there is a part of him that doesn't exactly want to be a Todd Packer.
1: Mm. There's a
0: lot of room for not being great before you hit Todd Packer. (laughs) But I don't know.
1: Is he going to want to be like Jim? Like, cause the thing about Jim that I thought was interesting in this is like, he is a prankster as well. Um, but in, although his pranks seemed, um, do you call it like uh reactive or something like he's he's messing with dwight because dwight is messing with him kind of or because dwight is just uptight and self-involved and like believes that he's got power over everybody else because he's assistant manager no he's assistant to the manager which i found to be i thought that was very funny um and uh so yeah i kept thinking like oh does is he going to want to be more like Jim? But like, even in this episode, Jim doesn't actually, or at least to me, he did not read as like cool or funny or anything. He just read as kind of like, not, like not bad. You know, he's just fine. You know, um, I don't know.
0: Oh, hmm.
1: What did you think of Jim in this episode? Not to, unless you have more you want to say about um the uh, the Jan scene.
0: I, what do I have to say about Jim?
1: Ooh, wait, while you think of that, I just wanted to say, I love that point you made about the uh, voyeurism, you know, the all, like we're watching him, Pam's watching all that. And Mm -hmm. something you said a few minutes ago that I wrote down and I was like, oh, I love this. Is this kind of the small movements of people's face, the kind of micro interactions. And I think maybe that's what makes this format different from other sitcoms. Like when I think of Friends or, um I don't know, like Frasier or Cheers or whatever. Um, it's all about the punchline, you know, and it's all about the the applause. So mm-hmm. it's very like dialogue-based or maybe slapstick, but it's quite um, spectacular. It's like big, big moments. Whereas in this, like it is totally all about the smallest of moments. And I think that that's partly what makes me so uncomfortable is like, I feel like I shouldn't be allowed to watch this or something like like the one that really got me was with Pam, uh, Jim, another Jim moment, and with um, what's his name? Roy is his name, Roy.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: When Pam walks away, and Jim and Roy are there, and like on the one hand, it's just like how many times have we been through this in our own lives, where it's like you're 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 talking to somebody with somebody there that you. <laughs> Or close to that person who is the only reason that you're next to this other person goes away like at a party or something and then you're just stuck and it's like oh my god we don't actually have anything to talk about and so when he says what does he say like what's in what's what's in the bag or something (laughs) he's just like i'm gonna leave and i was like i almost turned the show off at that i was almost like i paused it i like went to get another cup of coffee i was just like i cannot this is so painful to me (laughs) Um, maybe because of my own awkwardness, like maybe that's it. But like, I was like, I don't want to inhabit this, but I do think part of it is like watching it. Like it feels shameful or something. Um, maybe that's too strong of a word, but there's something about seeing people be uh, so incredibly awkward and like, and knowing that you're watching it. I don't know.
0: Yes. I'm so glad that you brought up that moment. And I think that is for me, maybe the most relatable moment in the episode. <laughs> that I totally agree, just know that feeling so well. And there's something then really fascinating about making a show about that and representing that kind of moment that we do have. And I wonder if that's the kind of thing for me that rather than making me want to turn it off though, I (laughs) just kind of love it. Yeah, Like capturing something that those other kinds of shows that you talked about don't capture and don't do.
1: Yeah, I don't know if that's fair, you know, or not. But like, just, I'm just thinking like of the, I don't watch a ton of sitcoms. So I don't know if I have like a great, But it does feel to me, it felt to me like really different in this than most other things that I've seen. But yeah, um, what was I going to say, though? Oh, I wanted to ask about, um, oh, yeah, yeah. What was your take on Jim? Because like one of the things that really stuck out to me about him, like I said, was that he was not he wasn't like particularly sexy or cool or whatever, like not, you know, whether or not the actor is hot. I just mean like they weren't trying to like he, he wasn't like the. Yes, star. He wasn't whatever. Like he's, you know, and what I found interesting were those moments of like kind of self ironic um depression, you know, like he, he's very aware, but totally stuck. And I found that really interesting. Like my favorite moment, I think with him was when he's like, Oh, if Pam leaves, what do I do with all this? Like useless knowledge I have like about her favorite yogurt or something. And on the one hand, like I'm sure that that's setting up like a romantic plot. Like, of course you only know the yogurt of the person that you're supposed to be with or whatever. But on the other hand, like that's totally what it's like to work, to have like work people, right? Is like, you know shit about them. And the only reason you, know or you know shit about like your job and you wouldn't know that unless like, like it fills your brain. Like I'm thinking back to when I worked in like a video store and like would go to sleep and then dream about putting away movies or like, I could still tell you like some of the numbers, you know, on the chips that we put out or like the cost of the movie with taxes. Like it just the way that jobs like <laughs> rob your mind from, uh, you know, from having their own information or something like that. Yeah. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, What was your take on Jim?
0: I think that point about Jim, not, not being, portrayed to be like the super hot love interest or something like that not being that cool I think he has the some of the coolness that just goes with being nonchalant and the I don't really care kind of cool
1: Ooh, yeah
0: you're right and I think about this with his hair with his kind of oversized clothing and i'd have to think about i mean men's pants weren't as as small then as they are now but i still feel like he just looks you know like he's not not super put together and just looks really or to me i guess looks just like a a, the kind of guy that you would just see walking down the street or in your own office or wherever yeah and i think this connects to things with the makeup too, but like Pam, Pam's outfit, her kind of, you know, untucked button down shirt. Yes. Not None of them are made up in a way that makes them look unnatural or that makes them look like they're actors. Yes. And I really like that a lot.
1: Pam is like so pale yes I wrote that I was like wow Jim and Pam especially struck me as like pale yeah and I was like oh right like of course you know like that fluorescent lighting doesn't do you any favors you know but it's really interesting that they didn't try to aestheticize it too much you know I hope that going forward when they become big stars or whatever they don't like make them really, you know, I don't know, that like Jim takes his shirt off or something and we see his six pack, like, no, like he should be frumpy and schlubby. Like, you know, like people who sit at their desk for eight hours a day, you know?
0: Yeah, that you're right. I think they're, all, they are very yeah washed out kind yeah. of, kind of looking. And um, yeah, one, I guess one of the points of contrast then is with is with Jan when she walks in and she's got all the colors I think are so kind of muted, I guess, kind of washed out in general. There's nothing very bright, nothing really high contrast. And then when Jan comes in, in her black suit and yeah, she, she just kind yeah. of, so it seems yeah. like she comes from sort of a different aesthetic realm or, Culture, I guess, than the the characters in this office do.
1: Do you ever watch It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia? Yeah, um I love the. There's some episode where they're talking about oh, D is going to go to a Josh Groban concert, and she's like, <laughs> Groban wants his ladies to pop, uh, <laughs> which is the thing that I feel whenever I hear somebody say like, "Oh, that really popped." I'm like, "Well, Groban likes his ladies to pop." Like,
0: <laughs> That's a great line.
1: <laughs> um, so, okay, wait, then we get the, the uh, Jan's entrance kicks off the whole kind of plot around downsizing. Yes, we get yes. the the office kind of becomes a gossip chain. Um, we get uh, two scenes that we should definitely talk about. One is like the um, w- w- conference room scene, I guess, mm-hmm. um, with Stanley in particular, is that his name? Um, yeah. yeah. And then, which is a character we haven't talked about yet. And then, uh, and then the scene after that, where uh, Michael Scott pretends to fire Pam um, for uh, stealing Post-it notes. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, we should definitely talk about those two. What were your What were your thoughts on that conference room uh, scene?
0: Yeah, it's kind of great. I think that they have this conference room meeting in this first episode because i think it'll kick off a long tradition of conference room meetings where things get weird with michael so yeah so in this is the scene where michael's announcing potential branch closings and he's trying to assure uh the workers that it's going to be okay and that he he basically is in control of it and they're not gonna lose their jobs but it's really really pretty clear that it's probably not gonna be quite as smooth as that. And the interaction that stood out to me the most was the one with Stanley. And Stanley's the only black character that we've seen in the office, at least like in this part of the office. And he's really kind of pushing back on Michael a little bit on the question of what will happen and whether it actually is in Michael's control. So he's doubting him. He's pushing back on it. And Michael keeps saying, you know, that it's going to be okay. And Michael then he compares it to, to, to Josh, to one of the other um, branch managers and that, you know, it might be this way with Josh's people, but we're not going to lose my men. And then he says this line, and this is all following the interaction with Stanley that honestly, I feel awkward to even quote but he says Michael says I'm the head of this family and you ain't gonna be messing with my chillin.
1: Oh boy.
0: And he says it in an accent though. Yeah. And it's kind of like a um like sort of a mammy kind of forceful maybe kind of sassy. I put in quotes black woman Stereotype. Yeah. And I feel like it's it's a stereotype with a really long history. And then one also that shows up. I think I'm trying to think about the source also for Michael. And I think it shows up in those Tyler Perry Medea movies, which I haven't actually seen, but I think that have kind of that vibe. And it's so so clearly he's doing this weird talking like a stereotypical black woman kind of thing. Mm. And then it's followed by this long moment of silence. There are kind of long silences too in the show where Stanley is kind of shaking his head and turning away. And Michael is looking at him waiting. And I, he feels like he's sort of waiting, hoping for some kind of reassurance or something, or that this will have settled it and shown how much he cares about his office people. And, I think it's this key moment where we see that the show is really going to be doing something with race. Yeah. And thinking about the things that white people do um and what are called microaggressions like those mm-hmm. those seemingly small but really hurtful kinds of of moments of, you know, saying, like making comments offhand and that kind of thing. I feel like in some ways, this show is very much about that and about that kind of racism and yeah. that kind of sexism too, which is what we, although some, some of we, we've had in this episode so far more of that, but I think it's really an interesting show in that way, in terms of what it's doing socially and in terms of what it's trying to do with race in these moments when michael ends up just um I think this is one of his most painful kind of moments yeah. and his low kind of moments I don't know what was your what was your feeling about that
1: I mean everything you're saying I think is is right on and really interesting I mean i think i kept thinking about, Well, I mean, this is my, this might be like a really boring question (laughs) and I feel like my, I'm often like very uncreative in my, like, is this, you know, I'm like, is this criticizing him or is it reproducing it? You know? And it's like, it can do both. It can do neither. But I often find myself like asking that question, a lot of pop culture. um, And again, like, I think that that's probably like a limited question, but You know, a lot depends on how you read those silences and I, you know, I totally agree. I mean, I thought it was really interesting that the silence is there. And it seemed to me like the show is really trying to communicate that like, what he said is problematic in some way, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't unpack, like in what way, or what particularly about it, you know, in the same way that it doesn't um, do that with the sexism. And so, you know, sometimes that makes me wonder like, well, does that allow a kind of like liberal or lefty audience to receive the show in one way and like a a center right, you know, or far right audience to receive it in another way, but both of them sort of accept it like, um, you know, by not sort of having a character be like, hey, like you're being racist or that's messed up or you're, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. um although I'll be kind of curious if that if we get characters later who will articulate those things um and what that will like how that would play out Mm -hmm. um so yeah that was the one thought I had I mean I definitely thought wow like this reminds you know I feel like I don't know you know the norms around comedy are changing but just maybe maybe (laughs) but like when I was young, like, you know, and even not young, just like hearing people do like accents like that and make jokes like that was like so common. And so (laughs) seeing it was like, oh yeah, like I forgot how often like, you know, you look at any like 80s comedy or 90s comedy, you know, um, early 2000s, like some of the stuff that they do, like with kind of racial and ethnic stereotypes is totally unabashed. And, you know, it's like, I don't, yeah, I don't know. So it made me really wonder about how the show is like igno- trying to acknowledge that history and pivot or do, some, do something with it because like his whole shtick is like accents and, and and I mean, actually that's one thing that, to go way back this, and this is not to move away from this scene or this conversation, but early on you said one of your favorite things to do is to quote the show, like with your family and friends and stuff like that. And I kept thinking, oh my God, like, Michael Scott, he's like a guy who loves to quote other movies and like he does what's up and he does this and that and the other. And so like, I kept thinking about that too. Like, what is it in his mind that he thinks he's doing? Does he think like, I I thought that he thought he was trying to like relate to black people, you know, yeah. but also maybe, you know, I don't remember what, what he, TV shows he said he was or what movies or whatever, but like, it would be really interesting if like part he thinks that he's trying to quote like black culture or black film or you know or films that he thinks accurately represents blackness but of course don't I don't not that we should of course like try to understand his point of view because there's the question of like what is Stanley's point of view in this scene like I kept thinking like is he like you know my impression of him is just like uh like this guy here we go like you know It it did a good job of representing a scenario that I'm sure Stanley has like had to deal with his entire experience of Michael Scott, but also his entire experience of being in, you know, white corporate America. Um, So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I'm really, when you told me that the next episode is called like diversity day, I was like, holy crap. Like I'm ready to see what they do with this.
0: Yeah. I think that this plants a seed for more things that are going to unfold um, and that they're gonna have to deal with in what's coming. I think your point is really interesting about how this is received by different audiences too and how you read that moment with Michael and how you read and feel the silence. And do we take in that silence Like, does it have the critique and does it give us the space in that to really be kind of questioning what is going on in this this thing with Michael? And I think this ties back to your question about relatability. Mm. And do viewers, when watching it, feel that Michael is really relatable there? Do they feel that Stanley is relatable there? Do they feel like, being in the audience is relatable. Um, And if, I guess if they find Michael to be a relatable character in that moment, does this, does it just kind of stay and does nothing come of it? Or is it asking white people to critique and like really question that stuff that like you said has been, so common and feels recognizable. And in such a way that we even, like, I don't know what exactly, if, if Michael has a particular source on that. And like right. you said, Michael loves to loves to quote things and he loves comedy and all of that. So I don't know if there's a particular place, but even in the way that we can read that as racially coded language, like just how how recognizable that is in that moment, coming from him, I think also says something about the ways that we talk about race often without directly talking about race and the ways that it can be a current within, um, yeah, within conversations that seem not to be about that at all, or that are on the surface, not about that, but that becomes somehow for, in this scene, something where Michael has to like, I don't know, draw on his, I don't know.
1: I don't know, I'm losing my track there, but. Well, part of it, it's really interesting too, just like to to the way that like, I love this point that you're making too, about how like, you know, if this is a show that's about like micro interactions and micro aggressions, like, you know, in giving us those, it's partly about like, how how do you relate to them? How do you deal with them? you know and and how can they arise in ways that are um you know unrelated necessarily to whatever is actually being talked about right and so the conversation is ostensibly about like are you going to lose your job and so like what's off- a <laughs> part of what's like offensive is his invocation of the stereotype the other part that's m- maybe not offensive but like is is um, perhaps frustrating or annoying or deceptive to stanley and to others it's like he's just saying like don't worry about it you know you you know i got you you know i'll i'll take i have your back or whatever but it's so interesting to me that those two layer together that it's like as you said he invokes this kind of like you know um black idiom to Mm -hmm. describe like his relationship to all of them which is like you know, we're a family, but specifically, like, a Black family, in this <laughs> right, village, right? Yeah. and, like, as a way to consolidate what is actually, <laughs> actually yeah, yeah, and, like, but, you know, and I, I actually was kind of curious how this is going to play out, like, throughout the show, because, like, I keep thinking about, something I think about a lot is, like, how co- corporations and companies are, like, we're a family, and, like, mm-hmm. workers, you know, you're not actually a worker, you're part of a, you know, a household or whatever that is Amazon or some shit. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like all to make you feel attached to a system that doesn't actually care about you or is not going to sustain you. And so I thought that was here too. Like maybe the silence or, or Stanley's, you know, kind of looking at him is this kind of also like, I don't trust you. And, and, and I kept thinking about like, are we meant to take Michael's his humor, his whatever is, are we meant to understand it as mystifying the relationships between boss and worker? You know, like, does it basically like try to er erase, try to make you forget the hierarchy of labor, the exploitation Mm -hmm. of it or whatever, or are we meant to be like, oh, that's so nice that he tries to make this alienating, um, awful space, something more than it Is, you know, but I get the impression from all of the characters, at least right at the beginning, that they're like, stop trying to be my friend, just tell me what the job is, and let's just do the job, which is like, yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to think about how that's gonna play out like later and how the audience relates to it. Does the audience sort of like enjoy the excess of affect at work or not? Um, you know, because a lot of people don't want to be friends with their boss. (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah yeah so
1: true and then on the other hand we do have work work friends work family work whatever um Mm -hmm. yeah is the end of the episode then they're all supposed to be going out for a drink and
0: they've you know they've apparently been planning to but then it kind of falls apart or jim doesn't go but i think it's not entirely clear if jim had been the kind of like rallying person and the whole thing fell apart if he was really doing it in hopes of just you know getting pam to go right like organizing something as a group in order to be able to do something with pam or if the rest of the group moved on and because pam was still there he just stayed on but i have to there, there's one other this is kind of a random thing to go back to but in relation to the Stanley thing and the way that Michael thinks about race. Can we talk about the fact that one of his, like his list of heroes and one of them is Abraham Lincoln.
1: <laughs> okay. I wrote them down. I got Bob Hope, Abraham Lincoln, Bono and God.
0: Yeah. And probably God would be. The whole. And I love, he gives emphasis too, to Abraham Lincoln. Cause it's like Bob Hope, Abraham Lincoln, definitely Bono
1: and probably God. You are so good with paying attention to phrasing. Like, I'm like, oh, I need to listen to the dialogue better. Uh, Well,
0: it helps that I've um, watched it a million times and that I typed my notes this time. Um, But I think think there are these parts of Michael, too, where he wants to be a kind of inclusive, like pro-diversity kind of guy. And I think... I just sort of feel like he thinks that Abraham Lincoln then is that guy. Like <laughs> people who care about that, right? Care about Abraham Lincoln. Like if you're gonna choose a hero, it's him. Um, which is reminding me of uh, Donald Trump sort of sort of recently. Didn't he say that he was the least racist president since maybe Abraham Lincoln?
1: Yeah.
0: Oh no, or was that the best president? I can't remember.
1: I but anyway. Either way. <laughs>
0: but what it is that Abraham Lincoln sort of represents. And Abraham Lincoln is of course much more complicated and has plenty of racism of his own and is not in fact the figure that he's sort of held up to be as like the glorious emancipator. But it sort of feels like for Michael, he would be. And like Michael might be kind of signaling that with his choice of Abraham Lincoln definitely but am I totally overreading his relationship to Abraham Lincoln? No, I'm
1: loving the, I didn't really, I was like, I laughed at that list. And I guess what, I'm trying to think what was so funny to me. About, I mean, maybe that's like, like the danger of this podcast is like, how do you explain a joke? Like, you know, <laughs> does that just like, or is the whole purpose just, are we just ruining everything? But I guess what was funny to me about it was it seemed so, um, I don't know, like out of, some of it was out of date in a way. Like it's, it was, it wasn't current. Like to yeah. to idealize Bob Hope or Abe Lincoln is like not, again, like kind of not cool, <laughs> but not even like trying to be cool. So I was like, what is his self?
0: Yeah, is Bono, do you think, is that where he's, um, you know, hip with the kids?
1: I get, yeah. And I'm thinking Bono at that point was, you know, kind of like, to, uh, wasn't he like partnering up with Bush a bunch, and you know? But he was this kind of like global pop star figure trying to, I don't know. But yeah,
0: like kind of kind of rock star humanitarian yes. in his combination.
1: Yeah. So maybe that's a part of it too, is like these images of like leadership or something that he Mm -hmm. like is trying to fashion himself after. Um, (laughs) But I love that you bring up this. I mean, I do think one thing that's interesting to me is like, okay, in 2005, like, I don't know, like when people, I feel like now we're in this moment where it's like, and maybe this is more about me than like I shouldn't generalize to other people, but I do feel like you watch TV and you have characters being like, oh, are they a Democrat? Are they Republican? Did they vote for Trump? Did they do, you know, there's this like political identity matters more now in a way, which is not to say that it didn't matter then, but like in my experience, it, you know, with teaching students, like I feel like over the, you can hear Toby growling. He wants to like get out of this room. Um, he uh like students have much more of a an avowed sense of political orientation or identity than when I started teaching um which would have been in like I don't know when when did I start teaching I'm forgetting 2007 or something like that
0: oh Um, oh yeah Rutgers
1: yeah and so and I feel like my student population hasn't changed that much like but the Anyway, so I kept, I kept, I keep thinking about that, which is not to say that their politif- political or any of our political identifications are more or less sophisticated or whatever, but there is definitely like a different discourse around it. So I kept thinking, would people be relating to these characters as in any political way? Like, would his mm-hmm. invocation of Abe Lincoln? Or Bono, would they be read as political or not at all? And I'm and I'm kind of thinking not at all. But that's insane in 2005 when we're in the midst of the war on terror, the mm-hmm. um, uh, wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, right? I don't know. I, I would have to look at the dates on um, that. But you know, either way. Uh, anyway, that, those are all of my. That's my only thought about Abe Lincoln is like, I wonder how he read politically in that moment. Yeah. Um, what about God? <laughs> is it just that he's like you know aspiring to be him that he's a narcissist but like i don't know i love that he says probably god
0: <laughs> he's like oh i think all those people they really helped the world in in so many ways <laughs>
1: <Just> <laughs> maybe that's it right this like your grandiose sense of yourself yeah what you really are is just a regional manager at a paper yeah.
0: you're right it is so it is it is sort of delightfully grandiose he also has just one of my little favorite types of michael moments which at the end of that little explanation he's he's saying you know that these these people have been doing so much for the world but it's beyond words it's really in incalculable yes incalculable. Like, it's something like that where he he misses incalculable and I don't know. I just love it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like you were saying before, these like little micro moments. Um, we have gotta pick a Dundee winner soon, right? We do. Do we have to
0: talk at all about Michael punking Pam? We've
1: gotta talk about that. I wanna talk about the jello. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think what else we haven't hit on the I. Well, I just thought it was funny that Pam has been engaged for three years. I don't know why that made me laugh, but I yeah. just, the way that, I really liked that actress's way of uh-huh. acting. And I felt like the yeah. way that she read that line was like incredible um,
0: Yeah,
1: and really, yeah. I, maybe that's it. Like that painful, like she's trying to say, I don't know, ugh, like, cause we're like, oh, that's too long of an engagement according to normative heteronormativity, like. <laughs> <laughs> but, and she knows that we're thinking that, but she's saying it yeah. in a way to kind of save face. I keep going back to this point that you made earlier about how like there's often like three people in a scene and like the point is to have like this interaction between two and then a third watching and then we're watching the person watching. Hmm. So it's like meta reaction. And yeah. um, so, but even the characters in those one-on-ones are aware of how yeah. what they're saying will be interpreted, but... Um, okay, yeah. Pam gets punked and uh, and my heart was just yeah. in agony. Uh, what were you thoughts? There's, a,
0: there's another thing to your point about Michael just being full of quotations. Um he's taking it right from he's this the Jamie Kennedy Project?
1: Oh, is that yeah. the show Punked? No, Punked was um
0: Matt, have you seen, um... seen Punked?
1: What was punked? Uh Ashton Kutcher. Ashton Kutcher. And it was oh, like right, a,
0: where they like play uh they like they trick you basically. Yes. yes and yes. you know, they like come with camera and, yeah. and you find out. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. which I think the Jamie Kennedy show or whatever was like the same concept. It's similar as as thing. Okay. But I don't rem- I don't know.
0: Yeah. That just is another another one where the watching the faces. And Michael, as he tries to keep a straight face to deliver this news to Pam, and he is telling her that she is fired because she stole Post-it notes. And she is just so sincere and so upset, and he's trying not to laugh. And,
1: oh, the whole thing, it just, yeah, it hurts. I just, it reminded me of, jokes gone awry you know like when and I and I feel like I you know I don't know I'm trying to think I'm sure that I participated in a joke like that Mm -hmm. you know I know that I have and I'm like you know and I think that's part of my shame you know I wouldn't say that I've like you know pretended to fire somebody but just that (laughs) kind of like you know where you like are like oh you know something bad happened and then it's like oh no it didn't you know or something like that but that's like it I felt like that scene really revealed to me how cruel that joke is so even if for a moment you think something bad happened like how awful that is to do to somebody um and like his problem I feel like is that he doesn't get the temporality of the joke like he makes it go on Mm -hmm. and go on and go it goes on so much and we see him like you know trying to cover up his face and he's chuckling and I'm like Pam like look at him look at him like see that he's (laughs) full of crap or whatever but like he just keeps going and trying to make it more plausible. Um, do you, I don't remember the dialogue, but I just, what was the, what was his reason for um,
0: firing? It yeah. was like
1: stealing post-it notes and something about how they cost 50 cents or something.
0: Yeah, yeah, because Pam says, what do they cost 50 cents? And he says, well, you know, you fi- steal 500 post-it notes at 50 cents a pop and you're making a profit margin or something <laughs> like that. It not that like kind of economic <laughs> language. And then he tells her too that, the the good thing about it i guess for the company is that we don't even have to pay you severance because it's a case of gross misconduct
1: yes yes yes
0: and uh yeah i think you're right about the timing like he just he goes on for so long and then she tells him so then at the end when she tells him once he once he kind of comes out with the truth about it and like we totally got you and she says you're a jerk in this way that you just really really feel and it feels like in some ways she's kind of articulating a feeling of the entire office (laughs) back to the stanley moment the hitler performance all of this
1: (laughs) oh my God, the Hitler performance, I forgot. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I think that that's, that's really interesting. Like, it's important that the show is telling us this guy is a jerk. And mm-hmm. yet, I get, maybe that's part of my resistance to the show in some ways, where I'm like, people are going to end up loving Michael Scott. And I'm like, mm-hmm. does that mean we've forgotten that he was a, he is a jerk? Or But I mean, maybe narrative is the thing that's gonna intervene. Like, he grows and he learns and he becomes like a good, you know, um, Middle class white man or whatever, or something like you know, but like yeah, in that moment I was like, he is a jerk, and like ah uh but on the other hand, of course, I was I I really was laughing at the uh moment when he tries to make it the temp's fault, or so doesn't he like he like uh says was it does he say it was his idea? Or something like that. Um,
0: Thinks that he's his accomplice.
1: Yeah, but just trying to rope in other people to yeah. justify this like awful. It's like it's as if he does not understand in any way his relationship to power. But then mm-hmm. on the other hand, he perfectly understands it. Mm-hmm. And the scene where that became really clear for me is like he does the six million dollar man with Pam. Right? He's like mm-hmm. doing sound effects or whatever, um, and then. I can't remember, then he gets mad at her. He turns on her for like some joke and he's like, that's inappropriate. I could send you to HR or something like that. I can't remember what it is.
0: Yeah, because when he he says that the six million million, oh, oh, that would be a good salary for me. And I, I should get a raise. Oh,
1: she wants that. a raise, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, wouldn't we all? And yeah, that's when he gets then serious. So that's yeah. when his joke mode kind of ends.
1: Yeah, and maybe that is about like the power structure being revealed or it's just I mean within the logic of the show it's just him taking it personally, right? Like he's like don't I take care of you? Like aren't you know are you unhappy, you know or whatever, but like yeah. that seems more threat that moment is more threatening to him than being called a jerk. Um yeah. but he yeah. is contrite, I guess, after being called a jerk kind of sort of not really.
0: That's fascinating. That really does seem like threatening moment to him hmm the one of the 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 time then so after after pam has called him a jerk left the office and then there's another one of those kind of long drawn out moments where he's still just sitting there with ryan yeah he has this piece of paper so he kind of pretends that he's he's looking at the paper he tries to hand the paper over to ryan ryan just will not take it but this moment of trying to reestablish yeah. the business as usual mode that does not succeed
1: that's such an interesting point yeah that is going to be a thing i'll be kind of curious to watch like like how how these moments like ripple or how you know how like he tries to reestablish like as you said kind of normality or business as usual like Basically, like how does his failed attempts at comedy, which turn into aggressive or or um mean spirited or just failed re- rela- relationships or or whatever, social interactions? Like mm-hmm. h- how do you recover from that? You know, and like maybe that's actually what feels maybe that's partly what awkwardness is to me. It's yeah. like when you fail to do sociality right, and then mm-hmm. you're just like stumbling trying it's the stumble as you try to like paper over and get back to um to normal i don't know that's one wow, i
0: love that idea i love that idea of the question of the recovery because mm. i think we see that both yet yeah, like in this moment in the moment we talked about with uh Jim and and Roy where they try to sort of normalize oh, that yeah so there's those and then there, then it's there too in um the sexist moments and the homophobic moments and the racist moments and what they sort of do in that space that follows mm-hmm. whether it's silent or kind of filled you know with noise trying to talk out of it or talk over it or whatever it might be.
1: Well, I'm really excited to see, uh, to see where it goes. Uh, Should we give a Dundee?
0: Let's give a Dundee.
1: All right. So explain this concept to me. You told me we need to give, I was like, you know, we were talking about awards and you're like, oh, it's gotta be the Dundees. And I was like, I don't get this reference. (laughs) What is, what is, what does it mean to assign a Dundee?
0: So I don't think we even really find out about what the Dundee awards are until I believe season two, episode one.
1: Oh, all right.
0: There, it'll be a little bit. But do you remember that little, in the opening sequence where they have the music, at the end, there's that little statue on the desk that Michael adjusts?
1: Yes, yes. A little
0: um, trophy, a little businessman trophy. So he has every year the Dundee Awards and he gives out those trophies, which are little businessmen with um, briefcases. And everyone in the office gets a Dundee, and he gives them for a whole range of reasons. So people get awards for all kinds of different things. Like it might be the fine work award. It might be the whitest tennis shoes award. <laughs> you can really give it for any anything you want to. And so for us with our episodes, we are each going to give out a Dundee for something that we think was a really strong character, strong moment, something that that deserves an award.
1: Okay, I love this.
0: Tyler, uh, hey, do you wanna start us off?
1: Oh, oh, there's so much pressure. Um, Cause I'm like looking over my notes and I'm like, all right, what would be, um, huh, okay. I can
0: go if you wanna. Yeah, you, you, want you to
1: go to first to outline. model, give me a good mo- a model.
0: <laughs> all right, I don't know how much of a model this will be, but you actually, brought up the scene when Pam talks about how long her engagement is. And I want to give today's Dundee to Pam and particularly Pam's face in the moment after she talks about that. So she, she basically says, you know, we've, we've been engaged for three years and we were going to get married at this time, but now we're going to get married in, in the summer or the spring. Yeah, yeah. And she just then does this little look away with her eyes that just seemed so heavy with feeling. That was like in that little moment, I can see all of this conflict that there might be around this timeline of your engagement and the fact that it's gotten pushed off for so long and what the audience is thinking as you're having to communicate this information. So. I'm giving my Dundee of the week to Pam and Pam's eyes.
1: Wow. Oh, I love that. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go in a weird direction with this. Um, Bring it I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, um, but it's
0: bit, Wait till you see Michael's Dundees. It can be very weird.
1: I would like to tell me if this breaks the rules already at the beginning, but I, I do know.
0: much like Dwight. I care a lot about the rules. Here oh, so. yeah,
1: your assistant the well manager. Yeah. Uh, okay. I would like, well, okay. I kind of want to give a Dundee to Michael's mug, the world's <laughs> best boss yes. mug, uh, which I felt first when it came on screen, I was like, that's iconic like I've seen that meme I've seen him hold this mug up like so I was just like did you know the story
0: behind the mug no I don't know
1: anything about the mug
0: Then this is such a good I mean the story that we get like we just yeah
1: no so then the fact that what I loved about it was that it was bought at Spencer Gifts (laughs) and I was just like oh my god like the 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 beautiful encapsulation of like kitschy trash and like kind of consumer culture uh you know in the late 90s early 2000s or like spencer gifts embodies that and so the fact that like he is you know has this like earnest investment in this like kitschy thing that then has gone on to become a meme i just was like oh my god i love this mug and it's like role in the story and then to have the mug be encased in jello at the end which is like playing a prank on michael uh-huh. you know um and in on the one hand like it sort of it it, it includes him in the pranking but it also mm-hmm. slightly inverts the power relationship of the jokery or whatever um but in a way that he will probably see as like oh they like me or they want to be friends with me or something like that so i just like thought like what a subtle beautiful little you know, icon or whatever that the that the oh. mug is. So I feel like the mug should get you know an award for its performance <laughs> and, and its longevity in the episode. Um, were there other thing, details about it that I'm forgetting? You're so good with the details well, of the. Mug. What
0: about the fact? What did you think about the fact that Michael bought it for himself?
1: Yes, right. Yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Michael, there's so, like pathetic, yeah. right? He's yes.
0: pathetic. It's pathetic. So is. So it's like, is there anything in this episode that feels redeeming about Michael or sympathetic about Michael? Because the last, the last thing that we get of him, mm, we get these things side by side. I feel like the last statement we get about Michael or around Michael is Pam, you're a jerk. But then we end on this world's best boss mug. Right. And so the thing like that it's that it's pathetic. And you sort of, are there ways that the show also makes you feel for Michael?
1: I think so. Yeah. And I think my, yeah, my kind of problem or my concern about that is like, how, how much did I sympathize with a boss Mm -hmm. or with a a corporation? On the other hand, um, just as like, people want to be liked, right? Like, and he wants to be like, I don't know, like he bought himself his own trophy, you know, like it's so <laughs> there's <laughs> something deeply, like I said, like I, I said the word pathetic the other day about a character and, uh, and somebody really pushed back on me and I was like, I don't mean that in like a bad way. Like, I, I mean that in like, a. you know, like I'm pathetic all the time. Like, it, like it's a state of being, not a judgment, mm-hmm. although maybe it's more um, often hurled in judgment. as like, you're so mm-hmm. pathetic. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I don't know. anyway, so that that like it's endearing in that way to me There, I'm like, I know, you know, I, I get the idea of feeling like you know, you you have to buy yourself the thing that nobody else will buy you. Yeah. Um, I don't yeah. know. maybe uh, maybe not.
0: At least he like, he's has these vulnerabilities. Yeah, and we see those kind of, yeah weaknesses or yes yeah, sort of pathetic aspects and vulnerable elements of him and um i agree it does it does make him feel kind of endearing and at least complicated
1: yes yes well you and i something that we've talked a lot about in terms of like who's attractive on the bachelor or the bachelorette like a big not nasty... that we know anything about that no the big magnet for our desire is like people who have some insecurity, right? Mm. And, or I feel, I don't, I, but I feel like we share this sexual orientation to insecure people, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and in fact, as I'm real, as I, as we're talking, I'm realizing it wasn't I when I, okay. So have you, do you know Olivia Rodrigo? Have you listened to her new album? No. okay so
0: no, she, no I, I am not aware of her I'm just still
1: <laughs> about our sexual
0: orientation <laughs> toward wait what was it insecure people yeah yeah
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh okay so Olivia Rodrigo I think she's like 21 or whatever and um you know she's got like this hot album right now and everybody is kind of, you know at least on social media on Twitter like a lot of I feel like 20 somethings and 30 somethings are saying like, Oh, where was this when I was a teen? You know, um, because it's kind of hearkening back to what is familiar to my youth, which is like, you know, kind of the Alanis Morissette, Courtney Love, um, you know, kind of like uh, an alternative music that that was often about negative affect, right? And about feeling bad. And like, and just and no no redeem not not even really much redemption in that just like kind of wallow wallowing in negativity and um so anyway we bought the album and like I've been listening to it and the first song is really good um but it it is also like there's this part of me is like is this good or do I just relate to this but it's like all about her being insecure and like but she, and she straight up says like, I want to be liked, but I'm not liked. Oh, hold on. I got to stop the cat. Munchkin. No, (laughs) you got to
0: play around there today.
1: Yeah. I didn't anticipate the cat. uh, (laughs) podcast. Okay. So in the, in the, um, oh, so she's constantly, she's singing about like how she wants to be liked. She's not liked, you know, all this kind of stuff. And I described her as pathetic, but I wasn't saying, I was saying like, I really relate to this kind of like yeah. self-pitying, unredemptive um um insecurity, Str- yeah. uncut insecurity. And maybe that's part of insecurity. what people resonate with. What'd you say? Uh, I said, uncut
0: insecurity. I've got to get this album.
1: <laughs> but I mean, put aside whether the album is good or not. I do think I was like, maybe what people resonate with in her music or with whatever, you know, if there really is some new wave coming of popular culture that like is unabashedly filled with anxiety and depression. Like maybe that's part of what the office like gives you is like a kind of like here's a here's a live wire of insecurity <laughs> just like is so desperate and 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 yearning or whatever for approval. Um, yeah. And he's I don't know. But on the other hand, you could imagine people being like, huh, I feel better about myself because I'm not like that guy. I don't know.
0: Um, mm, wow, that's a really interesting thing to think about. So I think, yeah, like you use you use pathetic more in the sense of pathos, I feel like. And that right. like that's your like, you know, that, that connection, that pathetic, yeah, that it's got a lot of feeling attached to it. And I think you're right. There's something, for us at least, very attractive about insecurity and really interesting um, about insecurity. So I think that, that I think that, that is what redeems Michael. I think that if he were um, fully secure and fully confident and felt like he had everything going for him, he would be awful. And maybe that's Todd Packer. I don't know.
1: Oh, um, interesting! Oh, but I think
0: it's his. I think I, I, I'm gonna argue that that is what saves him. That's interesting.
1: All right. Well, I can't wait to see. I can't wait to see where we go from here. Um, what, uh, what should we say? Like, as we close out, anything? Any final thoughts? Things we need to wrap up? I think
0: we've covered it pretty well.
1: We didn't talk about was up, but. Uh,
0: we did it. And actually, I got to say, you talk about the office for almost two hours, and I've got several things I know. that we did not even touch.
1: I can't believe we talked this long. I'm like, well, for our first episode, maybe it's okay. On the other hand, will anybody listen to it or get through it? There's our insecurity, you know? Now that I know where the whole podcast actually what it's going to be about is our attraction and interest <laughs> in insecurity. That's the real project here.
0: Yes. That is going to be the undercurrent. And I'll just say, anyone, if you made it this far, you too are deserving of a Dundee.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for listening to us, uh, uh, for going, taking this journey with us. We are honored and excited uh that anybody would would uh would, <laughs> would follow along with us so uh yes and at this sure. point we we need to like you know what next episode we'll announce our like social media follow us on all of that stuff you know we'll get like we'll get like more professional about it but in the meantime <laughs> thanks for listening and uh and next episode is going to be what's it what's the t- t- title
0: it is diversity day season one episode two an absolute classic
1: all right i look forward to um to seeing it uh uh thanks for listening
0: thank you bye everybody